If you have your Bibles, I'd love to encourage you to join me in Romans chapter 5. Now, before I begin my message this morning, I have to do an intelligence test so I know what level to put this message at. How many of you could leave this room, walk out to the parking lot, and find the car that you came here in? How many of you could do that? All right, that's... I'm going to be honest with you, either you're lazy or you actually don't know, but not every hand was up. So we might need a ministry at the end to help people get to their cars. Now, when you get to your car, I'm assuming that you have keys, which will give you access to that car. And then I'm going to make an assumption that you can safely operate that motor vehicle. Now, how many of you who have now made your way from this room to your car know where you live? All right, that's good, that's good. You can navigate your way from this location to your house. I'm going to assume yet again that you have keys, you have a passcode, you can get into your house and you may safely dwell there. You're thinking, are you asking us to leave? The majority of you, yes. Just checking first. What I'm wondering is, do you know how to get in your car, operate your car, get to your house, dwell in your house, know what it looks like, know where it is? You know what you possess, and you know how to live in and use your possession. That's kind of where we find ourselves here in Romans chapter 5. This is an important passage of scripture. I want to begin reading in verse one. If you don't have your Bible, the verses will be here on the screen. We're just going to unpack these five verses this morning. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also. Knowing that tribulation worketh patience and patience experience and experience hope and hope maketh not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. That's an incredible passage of Scripture. And I did the intelligence test, so I'm assuming you were with me, and you remember what the first word of the first verse is. It is therefore. And I was taught very early on in Bible study, if you see therefore, you got to find out what it's there for. The reason that the therefore is therefore is the last word of chapter 4, and the Bible tells us in Romans 4.25, speaking of Jesus, he was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Justification is a big Bible word. He was raised again for our justification. Therefore, based on this reality, being justified by faith, he begins to list some possessions that we have. Some things that we own, and the question is, do we know how to access them, and do we actually dwell in them, live there, and abide in them? In other words, based on what he has already written in Romans about our sinful heart, your sinful heart and my sinful heart. 
about your need for redemption and my need for redemption. Based on salvation by grace, he is saying to us, now there's something you need to learn as a believer to possess, to abide in. I love what one writer said of Romans 5. He said, Romans 5 is a graduation exercise. Up to this point in the book of Romans, we've been dealing with birth truths, becoming a new creature in Christ, finding forgiveness for our sins. But he says here now that we reach chapter 5, we start in on growth truths. It's time for us to spiritually grow up. It is time for us to take possession of what we own, to abide in what we have, to dwell in what we know to be the truth. Justified by faith. What in the world does justified mean? I know that's a Bible word. Justification is in there. I know that I have been told that I have been justified by Christ. What is justification? I love how one author penned it. He said, justification is being declared righteous 100%. Now remember, he said, justification does not mean that you are sinless. You sin and I sin every single day. But it does mean that God declares us righteous. And get this, he wipes every sin off our record. Every sin that we committed before salvation and every sin that we commit after salvation, he understands anything less than 100% justification and we cannot be declared righteous. He went on, I think it's beautiful imagery. He says our hearts and souls are like fresh fallen snow. The stain of our sin is forever washed away. But here's the beautiful aspect of Romans 5. That is just the beginning of what Jesus Christ does for us. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, whatever else you do, Whatever else you say, whatever else you consider, whatever else you consider or think about or wonder about when you get up or lie down, have no uncertainty about this. Your sins have been washed away by Jesus and you have been declared righteous in the sight of God. But I can tell you some other things that you have. Note what he says in verse 1. Therefore, based on justification that we have in Christ, past tense, being justified by faith, we have peace. This is a possession that we have. This is a place where we can dwell. This is something that we can access. You might be like me and think to yourself, Pastor, are you crazy? My life is utter turmoil on all sides. I have everything but peace. Now hold on just a second. Because what Romans 5.1 is talking about is not a state of mind, nor is it a state of heart, but rather it is a prevailing condition between two entities which were once alienated. Understand that holy God and sinful man have been alienated and the breach is sin. Paul declares something, and this is really staggering to comprehend. And I will tell you, this is foundational theological truth from Scripture. Paul was writing in Romans 8, and he explains this in his letter to the Romans about enmity, enmity between God and man. He says this, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Get this, though. For to be carnally minded, fleshly minded, is death. 
But to be spiritually minded is life and peace because the carnal mind is enmity against God. Humanity in our natural state, in our default sinful setting, and we don't like to consider this, is actually the enemy of holy God. The word enmity, as we understand it in the Greek, communicates hatred. In other words, the heart of the unbeliever is hostile, it's hateful, it is the enemy of God. Now, Paul was preaching to the Athenians. He was preaching at Athens. You say, I got that with the Athenians. Other people are like, Athenians? What? What? Paul was preaching at Athens to the Athenians. In Acts chapter 17, we get to listen in on his message. He says something to an intellectual group of people that I'm certain they wanted to repulse. They don't want to come to grips with this reality. But as he preaches, he says this in Acts 17, 30, speaking of Jesus, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent because God hath appointed a day in the which He will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. Here is what Paul is saying to educated Athenians. I know that you feel like your status in life has insulated you against this, but the truth is God is coming back and God is going to judge humanity for their sin through Jesus. And there is no neutrality in this. Carnally minded, in our natural state, we are hostile, we are filled with hatred, we are at enmity with God. Spiritually born again, we have peace with God. Romans 3, I know you know these verses, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We who were once hostile at enmity with God through Jesus Christ have peace with God. It's past tense. When you accept Christ, you have arrived in that condition. He does not say you will eventually get it. He does not say you are working towards it. He says you have it. The moment that you said, oh God, I am a sinner and I repent of my sins and I depend entirely upon your son to save me and to forgive me, at that moment you are justified and have peace with God. I'm not uh, a real fighter. So, boy, I couldn't tell by looking at you, you look like a, an average tough guy. No, not. Looks can be deceiving. I'm not a real fighter. I do know this, I am smart enough to know if I had to fight, who I might have a chance against. You ever size people up? Just walk the mall and you're like, yeah, I could probably take that guy. I do that when I come into church. That's terrible. I'm the pastor. I'm like, start something. I could probably take you. And then there's others that I'm like, man, I hope I have backup. Somebody around here, that's a big boy. Here's what I do know. I don't want to take on God. If I were to declare I have an enemy, I don't want it to be God. And what I'm learning in this passage of Scripture is justified in Christ, I have peace with God who I was once at war with. That is a condition that I now dwell in and I live in. Now hold on, peace with God does not mean escapism. Peace with God over my hostile condition of sin does not indicate a quiet atmosphere or the absence of trouble. 
It's not the control of situations by positive thinking or the denial of problems. I have peace with God. That is a state that every Christian has. But there is also the peace of God. The peace of God is possible for me to have because of peace with God. The peace of God comes when I commit my anxieties to the will of God. Paul wrote this to the believers at Philippi. Philippians 4, 6, here's what he said. Be careful for nothing. Now, I like to amplify this for people. He is literally saying, do not be filled with care for any one thing. Be not filled with care for any one thing. And that seems almost impossible. So at no point in our lives should we have anxiety or be filled with care. Yes. One of the favorite words of the psalmist was fret not. Stop fretting. Stop the anxiety. Stop being filled with care. How is that achievable or attainable? Rather, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And verse 7, And the peace of God, which passeth all human understanding, shall keep your heart and minds through Jesus Christ. That's how. Paul's not talking here in verse 1 about a subjective peace, but rather an objective peace. We have peace with God, and because of that, we can have the peace with God. Because the barrier of sin has been removed, we can have that. I hate getting in trouble. I hate being in trouble. I hate the sense of impending condemnation. I despise it. That's why Paul writes and he declares very clearly in Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Let me say it to you this way. No matter what you think of me, I am not in trouble with God. I love the reality that Paul says there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who are justified by faith, who are in Christ positionally. Now he does not say in there, there are no grounds for condemnation. Paul does not say there are no grounds for accusation. He does not say there is nothing in Chris that deserves condemnation because there is and there are and they're new every day. He just says, there is no condemnation. Now let me help some of you. Let me help myself biblically. You may feel condemned. You may feel that way, but that isn't the question. It's not about how you feel. It's about what God says. The devil is known as the accuser. And we give him plenty to work with, don't we? Daily. The accuser of the brethren goes in. Whenever I meditate on scripture, I think to myself, I can imagine Peter trying to serve Jesus in ministry and he's preaching the gospel message and he's there at Pentecost and he's, he's serving through hardship and suffering and the accuser comes and knocks on him and says, you remember the rooster, right? Don't forget the night that you denied, Peter. Don't think you've squared this thing up. 
Don't think you're elite level, man. Never forget the rooster. I imagine David, after another victory, or he writes another song, or he finds a night of peace, that the old accuser would come to him and say, oh, man, after God's own heart, don't forget, you can recall the images, don't forget Bathsheba. You're still on the hook with God for that, David. You better go to bed tonight and roll around. You better stay awake and feel dirty and rotten. You better feel used and bruised and scarred up and stained and tainted. You better carry this and bear this with you, David. Maybe it was Paul. And the accuser comes to him and says, never forget, man, I don't care how many churches you start. I don't care how many shipwrecks you survive. I don't care how many chapters or letters you write. Remember when you held everybody's coat when Stephen was stoned? Don't ever forget that, Paul, you spiritual dirtbag. You scoundrel. Don't ever forget that stain that is ever with you. What's the accuser say to you? Maybe he says to you, remember your thought life. Maybe he says to you, remember that act of promiscuity you wish you could do away with? Remember that party? You don't have a prayer. God doesn't like you. You deserve to be condemned. Other people that are sitting around you, let's be honest, they had a little better start. They're a little cleaner than you are. You're condemned. You should come into this place and feel like you're useless. You should live feeling less than. That is a tragic tool that the accuser has. It's a hammer that he beats us down with, and we can respond to that with Scripture. And here's what we know from Isaiah. I, God says, even I am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake and will not remember thy sins. I have two kids, largely good kids because of their mother. But my kids do sin. And when my kids sin and my kids are disobedient, as an earthly father, it is my responsibility to raise them and to point out the error of their ways and to rectify the situation. And because I am an imperfect father, when I go forward in life, I move forward in life on the basis of what I know them to be, on the mistake that they have already made, on the error and sin that they have committed. I cannot erase that from the database. It's in there. And so I interact with them. I deal with them every day moving forward based on what I know to be about their faulty ways. But I am an imperfect earthly father. What the scripture is saying to us about our perfect heavenly father is legitimately you get a fresh start. Legitimately he wipes the slate clean. And he does not look at you and say, I remember yesterday. And I know what you're going to do today because of yesterday. He literally, when you confess your sins, he is faithful. He is just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, justifying us and giving us a fresh start. So when the accuser whispers to you that you're a dirty, rotten, no good scoundrel, 
that you're the bad apple in the bunch and you're too bruised to ever have any purpose. You're too scarred. You're too condemned. You're too guilty to ever do anything. You simply, when you're feeling beat up, point to the cross and remind the accuser that God has actually forgotten it and abide in the peace that you have been given. Scripture uses intentional language throughout. The Bible tells us that Satan is an accuser. He is a prosecuting attorney who enters, he's depicted as going into the throne room of holy judge God. And he accuses us. But the Bible also paints the picture of Jesus as our advocate. Jesus is our defense attorney in the throne room, in the judge, in that courtroom before the holy judge that is God. And when Satan accuses us, the picture is God hearing the accusation, looking over at Jesus, and Jesus as our defense attorney merely holds his hands up and stands to his feet, and he shows those scars the nail-pierced hands, and God the Father looks back at the accuser and says, you're powerless. I've forgotten that. That's forgiven. There is no condemnation. There is nothing but peace. You have surrendered something that is yours to possess. Not only does he say we abide in peace, he makes it abundantly clear in verse 2, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. We have grace Grace is God's riches to us. Grace is the undeserved love and favor of God. Grace and peace always go together. Grace in this passage of Scripture, again, is looked upon as a position that we are in. We are placed in a seat of grace. We stand in God's presence. That's grace. We don't deserve to be there. The fact is we stand before God saved when we are woefully lost in our natural state. We stand in the favor of God. He's gracious to us. We have his privileges. We have his promises. And verse 2 says that Jesus is the one that provided that access to that grace. Access is a very special word in the Greek. It communicates being introduced to royalty by someone. That other than Jesus, we don't have access to God. But because of Jesus, we have access into this grace wherein we now stand. It's our state. If I were to ask you what state you lived in, I think you would say North Carolina, South Carolina. You might say South Carolina, North Carolina. You might say some other state, so to be all-inclusive, you might be here from some other state. Welcome. It's the greatest church in America, so I have been told. Cannot verify it, I haven't been to all of them. But I can ask you as a believer, and I can say to you, what state do you live in? And if you have been justified by faith, you say, I live in the state of grace. I live in the state of God's favor upon me. That word access has another nuance to it in the Greek language. It was used to describe the location where ships came in. Depicting a harbor or a haven where ships would safely stay out of the tempest. I have grace. Now think about this for just a second. Are you individually and are we as a church... A safe harbor for others who need shelter. Is this a church where gossip is replaced with words of grace 
or no? Is this a church where giving people the benefit of the doubt is the rule instead of the rare exception? Are you the kind of person, is this the kind of church where everyone else considers the other person more important than themselves or not? Paul wrote this in Romans 12. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another, not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer, distributing to the necessity of saints, given to hospitality. That's the hallmark of the body of Christ. There's no way this can happen without the supernatural impact of God's grace on the lives of those of us who are then willing to express that same grace. We're not standing in the state of grace because we deserve it. Therefore, we do not act with grace toward others because they deserve it. If they deserved it, if we deserved it, it would not be grace. Because of God's grace, Jesus Christ became a servant and he humbled himself to meet the deepest need of man. And because we have received Christ, do we ourselves become servants and meet the needs of others or do we only wait to have our needs met? Abide in the grace in which you dwell. And have a spirit of graciousness because of your justification in Christ. Because your sins have been wiped away and you have been declared righteous. You have peace with God and can have the peace of God. Because you have been declared righteous. Because your sins have been wiped away. You have grace. It's the state in which you live. Act graciously. Then he says something that absolutely stuns me. Because... I'm a human. I can't really comprehend what is being expected naturally. He says in the second part of verse 2, And rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Rejoice. Strong word. It means jubilant. It means exultant rejoicing. It means shout about it. Rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. I won't belabor it, but isn't it stunning that we now rejoice in the hope of the glory of God when earlier in this letter we were told in our natural state we all come short of the glory of God. And now it is our exultant jubilation. Now we shout because we have hope in the glory of God. Someday we will be glorified. We will see Him as He is and we will be like Him. That is our hope. Now, I understand having hope in the positive, right? I have hope, exultant jubilation, shout for joy in the glory of God. But nobody continues in verse 3. And not only so, but we also have exulting rejoicing in tribulations. Knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. Rejoice in tribulation. Rejoice in tribulation. I love what one author said. He said, not only does Paul energetically and enthusiastically praise God for grace, but he energetically and triumphantly praises God for tribulation, which is the Greek word that communicates, get this, suffering, hardship, and pain. And then he asks this question, is Paul having a moment of apostolic insanity? When he writes that, is that a moment of apostolic insanity? Shout for joy when pressure and suffering and pain come into my life? How, Paul? There's a lot of things I'd like to sit and ask. That's one of them. How? 
And he answers it very clearly. Because as believers, we see our pressure, our pain, our hardship, and our suffering as potential for positive growth. Now, I'm like you. That seems to fall way short of being enough. Oh, shoot. Yeah. Love, pain, pressure, hardship. Chance for growth. I'm good now. I don't think we think that way. Spiritually, that's where we have to get. That's why James says, count it all joy. I'll get there in a minute. Make a business decision. Count it. Reckon this to be the right thing for you. Make a business decision to be joyful. I think the great saints of the scriptures would agree. Ask Abraham and he'll direct your attention to the sacrifice on Mount Moriah. Ask Jacob and he'll probably point you to his stone pillow. Ask Joseph and he'll talk to you about the imprisonment and the dungeon. Ask Moses and he'll remind you of his trials with Pharaoh. David will probably tell you of his songs that came in the night. Peter will probably speak of his denial. John will tell you about the exile on the Isle of Patmos. Jesus glories in the cross. Those are Bible words. God doesn't promise to remove our pain. He doesn't even promise to relieve our pain, but he does promise to transform our pain and to use it to construct lives that will honor him. Make a business decision to have hope in that. Have hope in what? One writer said, suffering softens my rough edges. Makes me less judgmental. Helps me value people over things. Forces me to focus on what's important in life. As a result of suffering, I'm more compassionate, I'm more self-controlled, I'm more content, I'm more prayerful, I'm more passionate about the Bible, I'm more excited about heaven than I would have been otherwise. Left to myself, I'd be irritable, critical, and impatient, but my physical limitations are teaching me kindness, patience, and grace. All my suffering has been an opportunity for growth. Peter said, think it not strange when fiery trials come your way. James says something that sounds very much like Romans 5. My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. He didn't say, if you fall into it. He said, when. At the very outset, Christianity tells us to expect trouble. Trials are a given. You don't have to go looking for pain, pressure, suffering, and hardship. It will find you all by itself. I know what I'm thinking when I read the New Testament. I think to myself, Paul, you sound a lot like James. And Peter, you sound a lot like Paul and James. And they would probably say back to us, yeah, and we all sound a lot like Jesus. Hardship comes. Pain arrives on the scene. I don't want to trick you. I don't want to send you out of here with an unrealistic expectation. I don't think Paul or Peter or James is saying to you, enjoy your trial. I think they're saying to you and to me, see and rejoice in the value of it. It does produce spiritual growth. It does 
hone and shave off the rough edges. It can make you more compassionate and less judgmental, less irritable and critical and earthly minded and more heavenly minded and spiritually minded and gracious. That's why he concludes in verse five and says, and hope maketh not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. How many times have you and I said, I hope, I hope this breaks my way. I hope this goes away. Hope in God will never be disappointed. Why do we hope in everything else? When we own hope in His glory. When we own hope already. It's our possession. God's love has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. The idea there is that His love has been poured in and continues to be poured in. One Greek verbal student said, It is an unstinting lavishness. An unstinting lavishness. Don't give me half a cup of coffee. I don't like half a cup that feel ripped off. And the image that is being portrayed here is a faucet that is turned on into a cup. And the cup is filled and then the cup is overflowing. It is constantly being refilled. And the imagery is saying the faucet will never be turned off. The Holy Spirit in you is constantly filling every corner of you with the love of God. And because of that, you will never be disappointed. You say, well, I feel unloved. You are overflowed with a constant expression of light going to every corner. The light is never turned off. It presses in. It flows over. It will never cease. It's shed abroad in our hearts. We have peace. Where we had hostility and hatred. And we can have the peace of God because we have peace with God. We can actually go into now the throne room of grace boldly because we have been introduced to royalty by Jesus Christ. We have access into this grace wherein we now stand. This is our house. This is our state. Grace is the state we live in. The favor of God. The privilege of God. The promise of God. Live graciously. We have hope. We're not waiting for somebody to give us hope. We're not waiting for a break in the action, a turn of events. We own it. It's out there in the parking lot. We just have to go get in it. It's where we know it to be. We just have to enter it and safely dwell in that place. We have it. The question is, are we abiding in it or are we not? It's a beautiful passage of Scripture. Sometimes we think, well, good, I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. And that is good. And certainly beats the alternative. But justification is just the beginning. When you really meditate on what the Bible is teaching us, we have peace, and we have grace, and we have hope, and we never surrender it. Would you please bow your heads and close your eyes just for a moment now? Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.